Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, everyone. This is Monday morning, 8 a.m. podcast from Firms Consulting that goes out every Monday where we distill the insights from the noise. You can listen to the audio version of Monday morning, 8 a.m. by searching strategy skills in any podcast app, or you can get a written version of this podcast with the links to all the articles and any other relevant pieces we mention by signing up on firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo. So here are the big themes we are noticing in the news this week. So let's start with the big news this week, where Bob Dylan has decided to sell the rights to his entire music catalog to a major music label. Now, there are many, many things we can take from this. But let's look at some of the very deep insights that very few of the publications are talking about. For one, why has Bob Dylan chosen to sell the rights to his music? This means that the underlying property of what makes Bob Dylan famous in the first place, he does not own. Someone else, a corporation, owns his entire life's work. That's a big deal. Did he sell now because of age? Did he sell now because of streaming? He felt he could get the best price he possibly could have gotten because in the past, because of a lack of streaming options, there was not that much demand for his music and the price would have been low. Either way, it's a question worth asking. But let's go to the second, third, fourth order insights here. For a long time, when you look at what makes something popular, what makes something sell, you would go look at the rankings from a record store and you would say, well, this CD, this album by artist B, C, D, or whatever the name is, was the most selling album in the week in the month, in the year, and therefore it must be the most popular and most sought after music in the country. But what we're seeing with the rise of digital and basically the rise of an economy where the barriers to entries have collapsed is that we're seeing who the true winners are. Let me explain this to you. It's quite an important insight. If you went to a record store and you see the amount of stuff they have promoted and the way they lay out their shelves, The way they lay out their shelves is both a function of what is selling the most, but also the deals that that store has with the record label. So if a record label is running a major promotion and decides to promote a certain brand, a certain act, that brand and that act is going to get prime space in the store. By getting prime space in a store, consumers are more likely to buy that album. So when you see what is the most popular item most popular song previously that's a function of the record or the artist who was most likely or most able to overcome the hurdle of being part of the negotiations with the record label and the store and being part of the promotional package so what you're seeing is the most popular artist who was able to be part of a promotional campaign but if you stripped away that barrier if you said let's lay out all the artists on a table 
Not one promoted more than the other, not one placed better than the other. Who would sell the most? It would be most likely a different record label. Now, we're seeing that with the rise of digital. With streaming options like Spotify and so on, it's very easy to find the music you want. You don't have to go to a store and hope that store is large enough or supports and likes the genre of music you like and is therefore going to promote what you like. When you go to a record store or a music store, you buy what is available and what is promoted that's available. On a streaming service, that barrier, that friction is removed and you can find what you truly like. The effort to find a Bob Dylan song on Spotify is the same effort to find a song by a conventionally popular artist today. So what that means is because the barrier is the same, the one that you want, you're going to get versus the one that's easy for you to locate. Now, what does this mean for companies and individuals and so on? Well, the big insight here is that as these barriers start falling away, because we're still in the early ages of digital, but as these barriers start falling away, the most popular is going to rise to the top, not necessarily the most recent or the one that uh, influences, and I call music critics influences, tell you you should be listening to this or you should be watching this. For example, if you open the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Financial Times, and you go to the art section, there is a music critic, there is an uh, arts critic, there's a movie critic will tell you what they think you should watch. And previously, those people influence uh, companies that stock movies, that uh, stock music, but that's changed. You don't need to listen to someone telling you what you should do because the effort to find what you want to do is so low that the best is going to rise to the top. Now, you could argue that... Uh, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is not the greatest song in the world. But what we're seeing is that sales are booming. Basically, Mariah Carey's entire business model is let's go on a vacation for 11 months of the year and let's work really hard in Christmas and get the song out there. And as streaming has lowered the barriers to find the song, it's risen to the top. Because the song's written in such a way that it actually is not tied to any specific error, it can rise to the top. And because there are so few holiday options, it's almost always going to be in a playlist. That's the key word, a playlist that exists online. Ten years ago, we didn't have playlists. So what we're seeing with digital is barriers that protected incumbents are falling away. Think of a barrier like a tariff, right? When you had to go into a record store, the tariff on certain record companies and certain artists is they were not part of a promotion. That tariff has now fallen away. And the most successful or the most popular and the most relevant and most sought after artists are finding it much easier to rise to the top. The other deep point here is about what is a digital strategy. When I look at many clients who send us um, copies of digital strategies and asking us to comment on them, what I find is that they typically confuse a digital strategy from a strategy. A company choosing what its reason for being, where it's going to play, where in the value chain it's going, to, it's going to operate, that's a strategy. A digital company making those decisions is making a strategy decision. A digital strategy is not a strategy. You know, the most common flaw I see here is a lot of companies look at what VCs do and they say, well, the VC model is they make 10 bets of which one pans out in a monstrous way and they get so big returns that it makes up for the other losses in the nine bets. 
and we should make our own investments in digital in the same way. Here's the problem. If you're a bank and you've got 10 major initiatives going on to reinforce and strengthen your digital infrastructure for banking, I'd be horrified as a regulator if your strategy was that nine of them were going to fail and one of them was going to succeed. That would be a disaster. What many companies confuse when they look at what VC firms do is that a VC firm is making an investment strategy. If you as a bank want to make investments outside of your core business, that's okay to do if your investors are okay with it. But it's not okay to choose the same investment philosophy if you are actually investing in your core business because you are going to create tremendous pain and dislocation. So as you think about the impact of digital, think about what happens when the barriers and tariffs fall away. Which product succeeds? Can your product succeed? And two, how do you make these digital investments? The other big story and the one I particularly liked is one from the Wall Street Journal. And it was a great piece about how Emerson, which is a conglomerate, and the CEO, David Farr, has been responding to COVID-19. Now, the reason why I like this um, piece that uh, the Wall Street Journal did is because too often we think of strategy as a document we put together. Too often we think of decision-making as something that can always be preceded by a nice set piece of analysis lasting a few weeks, nice time to put together a proposal, nice time to present to the executives, and then people make decisions. When a company has a strategy, that's nice and hopefully it works. But the reality is that as soon as your strategy meets reality, reality always wins. And many, many critical decisions that need to be made, there is no luxury of time to appoint a team or to hire a consulting firm to go out there for six weeks to eight weeks to think about it, to give you a recommendation and to act on it. Here's the kicker. Not every, in fact, I would say most critical, important decisions don't have the luxury of an eight-week delay. So when you think about strategy, you have a document or you have a plan. But as you start rolling out that plan, numerous things crop up. And you've got to be a, an executive who can make decisions on the fly using instinct, using experience. You can call it gut, whatever it is. But it's very, very, very rare that the majority of the decisions you have to make over the course of rolling out a strategy is one where you have the right data, enough of the right data, enough time to analyze that data, and enough time to think about the analysis that you've done. Most often, the kind of work you have to do is what I call back-of-the-envelope calculations. Now, you can see this if you go to the Corporate Strategy and Transformation Program. If you look at that, one of the big things we emphasize in that program is that a lot of the thinking on how to do that, the entire thinking, the entire strategy, which the team goes out and tests over, I think, eight-week period, that was developed by a partner in two days. I think maybe one day, actually. And that's the part you have to distinguish, right? When we talk about strategy, too often we get caught into this construct whereby we think every strategy decision must be made like a strategy consulting firm. You've got to think of strategy like food. You can prepare food in many ways. You can go out onto the mean streets of Los Angeles and order tacos and so on from some street vendor. Or you can go to a nice uh, Michelin-starred restaurant in San Francisco and order a nice meal. Strategy is very similar. No one is better than the other one, but they exist for different reasons and different purposes. If you want to be a good strategist, and 
all you're learning to do is how to do strategy like a consulting firm, you're going to have a very big problem when you go into industry and you become a senior leader and you have to make a critical decision and you don't have eight weeks to call up McKinsey. I remember working with many CEOs and I remember one particular CEO, a female, and she was one of the first female CEOs in a very male-dominated sector. And we would always meet at this hotel near our house, a beautiful hotel. We would sit next to the fireplace and we'd talk about our business. And we would make very big decisions in the space of two to three hours about how she was going to fund a business, how she was going to develop the resource assets and how she was going to take it forward. And obviously, I didn't have eight weeks to ask an engagement manager, associates and business analysts to run an analysis for me. So clearly, I have to make a strategy decision not using the standard process. So as you think about strategy, and as you read this very good article in the Wall Street Journal, you're going to see that this CEO is making a lot of life-changing decisions rapidly. But the flaw in, I think, a lot of leadership is that you've maybe think that strategy can only be done on PowerPoint over eight weeks. No, that's one way to do strategy. The other way is you've got to make decisions rapidly. And if you go to the Corporate Strategy and Transformation Program, you can see how we did that. That's available to insiders, premium members. I think, yeah, it's available to insiders, not premium members. So you can see how we did it. You can see how we make decisions rapidly without a lot of data. And those are big decisions whether a company should build power stations or not build power stations. Now, if you have to think through wrenching decisions of what a business should be in, I think one of the best programs we have is something coming out to firms consulting insiders who have access to our advanced knowledge management system. One of the most difficult decisions a CEO has to make is to decide what business he will be in or she will be in and what business they will not be in. And we have a program, all the slides are available, all the analysis, whereby a national post office has to make a particularly difficult decision in terms of what businesses should they retain knowing that these are going to be failing businesses, knowing that these businesses are not going to be able to fund the pension, knowing that they're going to need massive bailouts that the government doesn't want to give them. But at the same time, making the decision to free some high growth, high margin businesses, because those businesses cannot exist within the culture of the post office. But by freeing them up, they can maybe compete against competitors that are encroaching on European turf. How do you make that decision? That's not just a, a question of what business is most attractive, what is growing the fastest. That's the opposite, isn't it? What business is not growing the fastest? What is not the most attractive? We're going to keep that. Too often... When we think about strategy, it's always about what is best, what is fastest, what is most profitable. But strategy is about making a decision that's in the best interest of your, of your shareholders. And sometimes what's in the best interest of your shareholders is not always to make money. And if you only think in terms of total shareholder return, that's if you're BCG or shareholder value, McKinsey and so on, you may go down the wrong path. So when you read this article about how David Fye is thinking through the decisions, First, think about how to make strategy decisions quickly, and we have a program for that. And second, think about how do you make a strategy decision when the goal is not to be the most profitable. And that you can see in the insider program we have, assuming you have access to our advanced knowledge management system. The next thing I want to talk about is a great piece again in the Wall Street Journal about the new CEO that has arrived to turn around Barnes & Noble. Now, I've been to Barnes & Noble many times. I've actually been to Barnes & Noble copycats in many countries around the world. And I can tell you right now that I have a long 
great memories with Barnes & Noble and those Barnes & Noble copycats. In many emerging markets where Barnes & Noble does not have a presence, they've inspired similar bookstores to copy Barnes & Noble's model of being able to browse in peace, drink nice cappuccino, order nice food, and read a magazine and not pay for it. And in fact, some of those copycats have actually dramatically improved on that business model. And I've spent many, many hours in Barnes & Noble and their copycat stores. So I have a lot of uh, insight into how the chain has developed and how it's changed and so on. And one of the big insights in that article, it is just two things. One is you have to break with conventional wisdom. And the next one is you've got to localize. What that means is that the way bookstores are set up and the way publishers are set up is a lot like the example I gave you earlier with the music stores and the record labels. That's whereby the publisher has certain high-profile authors they want to promote with certain high-profile deals. And if you're a high-profile author who's agreed to publish with someone because of a high-profile deal, and that publisher has told you, don't worry, we're going to have our A-team on this, and you're going to be able to see your book at the front of every major book retailer in the country, heavily promoted, so sign with us. As an author, when you go on holiday and with your family and friends and you go to a bookstore, you are going to expect to see your book front and center. So a lot of the deals that bookstores and publishers make is around this uh, massive promotional campaigns. But what the CEO of Barnes & Noble has done is he said, look, we're not going to do that. We're not going to have some centralized buyers sitting in one location in the United States telling every single store across the United States to ignore the taste of your local market and simply stock books that are not going to sell, but it's going to please some publishing house because they want to push a deal. So he's decentralized authority so that the purchasing will be done centrally, but the decision what to purchase will be made by the person running that local version or that local branch of Barnes & Noble. Many other changes have been rolled out whereby if you go to Barnes & Noble, you'll see that the books are displayed on round tables versus rectangular tables. They've moved away from pushing electronics and kids' products and gone back to books. Now, why this matters is because to challenge conventional wisdom is a big thing, and it comes down to confidence. No matter where you are in the world, whether you're an analyst, whether you're a manager, whether you are a CEO, it's very easy to put together a recommendation plan strategy and say, well... Nine out of the 10 leading companies do this, so I'm going to do it. The most influential and successful partner at the most influential and successful firm says I should do this. All the analysts say I should do this. All of my suppliers say I should do this. Do you have the confidence to say something that is different and breaks the traditional business model in an industry? Notice I didn't say, do you have the analytic firepower to support you? Because a lot of us think, if you just have the analysis, everyone is going to fall in line and agree with you. That almost never happens. In the real world, it doesn't matter what your analytic firepower is because no one cares about logic. People are paid their salaries and their bonuses are determined based on the incumbent business model. When you tell them to change a business model, they're not thinking about what is best. They're thinking about how much bonus they're going to get and how much work they're going to have to do to succeed in the new business model to retain the bonus they had. So they're going to push back always, and it's your job to have the confidence to see it through. Now, if you want to see about how to challenge some unbelievably entrenched business model, look at the U.S. market entry strategy, whereby we help a Latin American bank 
consider whether to open a retail branch network in the United States and offer funding to low-income entrepreneurs and families of entrepreneurs. When that study was done, just about everyone told us, yeah, you'll make a lot of money in microfinance. But as you'll see through the course of the analysis, that's certainly not the case. But again, we're challenging conventional wisdom. And of course, insiders with access to our knowledge management system can have copies of all of the editable slides in that study. The final big piece that I'm reading about is a story about how one of the main sovereign wealth funds in the Middle East, in Abu Dhabi, has gone on a significant investment spree despite the uncertainty uh, due to COVID-19. And it's a very nice piece about the uh, head of the um, fund and how he has uh, built his career from early days when the sheikh or the leader of the Emirate of Abu Dhabi tapped him to manage a gas line expansion project. And he did such a good job that they asked him to manage the sovereign wealth fund. Now, I don't want to comment too much on the person and their strategy because you can read the article and you can see it's a very interesting article. But what I do want to comment is the way the article is positioned. Because the way the article is positioned is that the majority of the interviews in that article is interviewing people that benefit from the sovereign wealth fund choosing to loosen their purse strings and make investments. So they benefit if the sovereign wealth fund makes investments. So what do you think their comments are going to be? Well, the comments are obviously congratulatory. They have only amazing things to say about this um, leader because he has a vision, he has the boldness, he has the courageousness to make investments when no one else is making it and they think it's the right thing to do. Now, to me, the article is very one-sided and surprising to be honest because one of the things the article should be doing is interviewing people that would not benefit from the sovereign wealth fund making investments and getting their views on whether the sovereign wealth fund is doing the right thing or doing something that maybe is going to hurt them in the future now we don't know what's going to happen we don't know if this expansion of the investment portfolio is going to be the best decision they made we don't know if it's the worst decision they're going to be making making. I hope it's all good decisions and they do well and the Emirate of Abu Dhabi is transformed and in 10 years they look back and said we did the right thing. We always want people to succeed. But it would have been nice to have seen what someone thinks if they're not going to be benefiting. And now what's the insight here? You can take out many insights you want from how to manage a sovereign wealth fund, how to manage investment decisions, what are the right investments to make. But I think the deeper insight here is how do you know you are doing the right thing? Who are you listening to? If you're only listening to people who benefit from you doing X, don't ask them if X is right. If you're only asking people who benefit from you doing Y, don't ask them if Y is right. You've got to speak to people who are not going to benefit from you doing X or Y to get their input. And that's a mistake I see a lot of clients making in our one-on-one coaching program. They make terrible career decisions because of the type of counsel they have. Some final pieces of advice, and again linked to leadership, is, you know, as we're going to Christmas and New Year, and I know you know different people celebrate different religious holidays now, some of you don't. But I know that even if you don't celebrate Christmas, there usually is a time for you to sit back and reflect, purely because it's universally accepted as a sort of end-of-the-year break. But I know a lot of clients are trying to reboot their careers. And I know a lot of you feel you are stuck. And I do a lot of calls with clients um, all over the world, Toronto, China, Beijing, Moscow, and so on, Armenia, who want help in changing their careers. And I always give them one very important piece of advice. It's know what you have control over and know what you don't have control over. 
But I speak to many clients who tell me they have no control over their career. Their boss tells them what to do, how to do it, when to do it. Nobody's interested in their ideas. Nobody's interested in their input. And I remember we have a program called Rebooting Your Career. It's a 21-day program. You can read the uh, summaries there. But I remember we had someone who was asked to manage a call center. And they were so upset. They were so angry. They were so disappointed because it was a call center. It's like being absolutely demoted and being pushed out to manage something that looks like a back office function and no one cares about it. And I remember telling them, well, you can look at it as a call center or you can think of it like a firefighting department. The call center is the first line. When something goes wrong in a company, it's the call center staff that bear the brunt of this. So they are the first line of defense. When something goes wrong, they will know about it first. It's their job whether they're just going to work with the customer to manage it or you're going to create a capability whereby you're going to find a way to escalate this into the operating units, into the management function to give them a sense of what's coming down the line. What are some of the percolating problems? When I got them to think of a call center as a first line of defense, not as a call center, obviously the business model, the strategy completely changes and this person's entire career changed whereby they're now a senior executive at that company because of the way they turn the call center not into a nuisance mitigating arm of the business but into a powerful forward warning system you know companies always say we want to forecast the future we want to see what's happening well you have it it's called your call center so you can watch that program listen to it to see how we did it but i think the big lesson here is that you need to decide what business you're in Sure, you may be working in a call center, but is it a call center? You may be working in purchasing, but how do you reinterpret that function? How do you reimagine that function? You can do anything you want, provided it's valuable to the company. So as you're going to Christmas, don't be disappointed that nobody else is taking the time to bring their creativity and vision to your work. You need to do that. And as always, as you know, we have many books out. We have the Strategy Journal. We have Mavis. We have Succeeding as a Management Consultant. Firms Consulting is running a special. If you buy the book and post a review on Goodreads, and if you have time and would like to do so, post one on Amazon as well, and you submit a copy of your receipt to support at firmsconsulting.com. And there is a deadline, so you should do this sooner rather than later. And you should write to support to find out the deadline. We will give you a complimentary one-month access to the accompanying video programs that go into the concepts in the book in a lot more detail. Some of the video courses will come out this year. Others will come out next year. So please write to support to understand all of the criteria. But as always, I hope you're enjoying this podcast series. And we will see you next week, Monday at 8 a.m. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.